If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn over to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15, a psalm of David that is only five verses long. But I told the earlier group, don't get excited. Don't get your hopes up. Anyway, scholars believe that David wrote this psalm near the time that the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem. You remember the story that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and all these crazy things happened to them, and they sent it back. They said, we don't want it. They sent it back, and uh, they were transporting it and getting it back uh, to its rightful place, um, to, the, uh, to Jerusalem, and placed in the tabernacle, the temporal housing, until Solomon would later build the temple, uh, the permanent structure. And in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant contained the presence of God. Uh, you can go back if you want to write these things on your note page and maybe later on today if you'd like to go back. We're not going to take time to do it today uh, for the sake of time. But if you want to go back and look at 1 Samuel 5 and 6 and 2 Samuel 6, you can read about what was going on then and what happened. Uh, it's pretty interesting to read more about the Ark of the Covenant. It belonged in the inner chamber of the tabernacle and temple called the Holy of Holies. You remember that? A place that only the high priest at the right time and in the right standing with God could enter to make sacrifices for the people that would temporarily cover man's sin. So let's stand together. Psalm 15. Let's read this together. And in the context of of what we know and the timing that uh, David wrote this, it says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent or your tabernacle? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And God, we pray that today we would put things aside. God, that you would move me aside. That your Holy Spirit that dwells in us would speak to us today. God, we pray that uh, if, if there are changes in our lives... Uh, that need to be made, that we would be willing to do that. God, speak to our hearts, because only you can do that. We can only speak to ears, but God, we ask that you'd speak to us today, deep down inside. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book, Integrity, Ted Engstrom told this story. For Coach Cleveland Stroud and the Bulldogs of Rockdale County High School of Conyers, Georgia, It was their championship season. 21 wins and 5 losses on the way to the Georgia Boys Basketball Tournament last March when a dramatic come-from-behind victory uh, launched them into the state finals. But now the new glass trophy case outside the high school gymnasium is bare. Earlier this month, the Georgia High School Association deprived Rockdale County of the championship after school officials said that a player who was scholastically ineligible had played 45 seconds in the first of the five uh, the school's five postseason games. We didn't know he was ineligible at the time. 
We didn't know until a few weeks ago, Coach Stroud said. Some people have said we should have just kept it quiet. It was, it was just 45 seconds, and the player wasn't an impact player. But you've got to do what's honest and right and what the rules say. I told my team that people forget the scores of basketball games. They don't ever forget what you're made of. Integrity. Does it really matter? As we look across the landscape of leadership, whether it be a world leader, a leader in our country, our state, our place of employment, and sadly, even in our churches, we seem to be faced with a crisis when it comes to integrity. There's hardly a day that goes by that integrity from some political leader is not called into question. And hold on to your hat as we head into the primaries and the elections and the campaigns. I will be ready to shoot my television. Are you with me? I hear that amen. But I want you to look at the crucial question that David, the questions that David asks in verse 1. He says this, Who shall sojourn, if you're taking notes, or abide, or be welcomed in your tent, God? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? How do I become one that you, God, desire to fellowship with? Somebody that God would desire to want to be around. We're going to ask ourselves this morning nine questions that are based on Psalm 15 that will help us know if we, are really, if we really are a person of godly integrity. I hope you'll go with me. Integrity is not an option for us to have fellowship with God. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the high priest for just a moment. God gave specific instructions to Aaron as to how he was to come into the presence of God to make an offering for himself and for his family first, and then for the people on that specific day of atonement. You'll find that specific thing or those things, and it's very interesting to read in Leviticus 16. Aaron also saw firsthand what would happen if someone didn't take that serious, uh, seriously. In Leviticus 10, his two sons thought they would approach God in their own way. And we read that and we realize that God struck them dead because of it. In 2 Samuel 6, David's servants and soldiers were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, as we have mentioned, back to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that the, the oxen stumbled that were pulling the cart that the Ark rested on, and Uzzah, one of the servants of David, reached up to steady the Ark and, and touched it. And you remember what happened? He was struck dead at that very moment that he touched the Ark. I'm sure as David asked these introductory questions that he had these instances in the back of his mind. What kind of a man do I need to be in order to dwell in the presence of God? The rest of the chapter tells us the integrity that is required. Verse 2 we begin. It says, he who walks blamelessly. Blamelessly. What a great place to start. This does not say perfect, if you'll notice. There's only been one who is perfect that has walked on this earth, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. So what does blameless mean? I'm coming up with a very profound definition right now. It is one without blame. That is blameless. One without blame. But let's break that down. First of all, blameless with God. A familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. That began here uh, with Aaron. That's where Aaron started. And if we have sin harbored in our lives and we're walking in our own strength, then some good may happen, but not God-sized good. God can't really work through us the way he wants to. So confession of sin, admission of sin to God, brokenness over sin is all part of us being blameless and a necessary starting place. But then we also need to be blameless to others. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Can we really be where we need to be with God if we have something against a brother or sister in Christ? No. And church... Can I tell you why this happens? And please know that I love you when I say this. Some of us in this room cannot bring ourselves to say this very thing. I was wrong, and I am sorry. And the reason we can't do that is because of the sin of pride. It's hard sometimes, right? To look at somebody else that you've known you've wronged and to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong, but we need to learn that. We need to learn that. You know, we let a disagreement fester in our hearts and it turns into resentment. That can even lead to, lead to hatred. And the only winner in that situation is the devil. Because we are in no condition to dwell in the presence of a holy God. So the first question I have there for you to ask yourself is, what is my standing with God and others? What is my standing with God and others? Look at the next part of verse 2. He who does what is right. It doesn't say talk about what is right. It doesn't say just know the right thing to do. The hard part is actually putting legs under it and doing what is right. What are some things that keep us from doing the right thing? First of all, I'm going to give you three. The right way is usually the hard way. The easy way is to just go along with what everybody else is doing, right? The right thing normally, a lot of times, is the hard way. Second thing is the right way is not usually the popular way. It, will, it won't be popular, uh, popular because other people around us view us doing what we're supposed to be doing. They feel guilty about it, and now they have a problem with what we're doing. It's not popular. I remember when I first started seminary, I was amazed at how much of the work given to us was done outside of class. And early on in one of my classes, I went in and the professor, we got down at the end of the cl class and he handed us a, a, a manila envelope. And he said, this is your test. I want you to take it, have it done for next class period, which would have been a couple days down the road. And all of a sudden, this pink elephant appeared in the room for me. I'm going. I'm thinking in my mind, can I use my books? Can I, I mean, am I allowed to do that? I mean, I don't want to be involved in cheating. I mean, here we are studying to go in the ministry, and we're going to be cheating. And I'm looking around, and other people are not raising their hands, but they're looking at me, because I'm all, you know, fidgety, and they're thinking, he's fixing to ask that question. And like one of my buddies was like going, looking at me going like that. And I'm like, I finally, I just blurted it out. I said, well, can we use our books? 
And like, he, looked, he looked over, he said, Kevin, can you, in your future church, are you going to be able to use your books when you study? I said, yes, sir. He said, then use your books. <sighs> Everybody in the room went kind of like, but, I, but what if he would have said no? What if he would have said no? I can imagine leaving that class today, somebody would have went, way to go, Seeger. Great job, blew it for everybody else. They weren't comfortable. They wouldn't have been comfortable, right? To do the right thing sometimes brings discomfort, doesn't it? Then the third thing, it's easier to rationalize it away. Will anyone really find out, is it really that big of a deal, Kevin? I graduated from seminary in 1994, and Sherry and I began the process of looking for a church home. We had several interviews with a church in Sanford, North Carolina. It's obvious that that didn't work out, thank the Lord, because I would have missed the opportunity that opened up here at Pitts Baptist. But I remember getting to know the chairman of that search committee, I believe, and I remember right, his name was Warren. But he told me about one of the guys that he had taken out to lunch before they were interviewing me that was just sort of an informal uh, um, uh, uh, interview. And as they went through the line at, this, at the local cafeteria, he noticed that the guy took some of the five-cent butter, you know that bowl that sits there near the bread, and took one of those butters that says five cents and put it under the lip of his plate on his tray. And they walked through the line, and obviously he didn't pay for it. And his mind's like, you know, it's just five cents. It's five cents. But it really started to bother him. Because he said, here's a guy that will, while I'm standing here, take a five-cent butter and slide it under his plate. What will he take when I'm not there? What will he be dishonest about when he's in charge of a large budget? Obviously, they didn't call that young man back for another interview. But in Luke 16.10, I wrote it there on your note sheet, it says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Integrity, even in little things, is a big deal. Especially for a believer. Folks, I don't know if you know this, but when people find out you're a Christian... They watch you. Because in their heart, they know what's supposed to be right and wrong. And they know when we violate it. Guys, we've got to be above reproach as a believer. And integrity means something, even in the little areas. So number two, the question, how do I walk as a believer? How do I walk as a believer? And the last part of verse two, he who speaks truth in his heart. He who speaks truth in his heart. This is not just what comes out of our mouth. That's important. But it's not just that. It's our actual value system. The the system that's inside us and foundational to our actions. It includes our motives, our attitudes, our reactions, our view of self, our view of God, our view of priorities, our worldview. It's that grid and that set of glasses that we look through, that we make all decisions upon, and hopefully... It aligns with the truths of God. Or are they really selfish at the core, but look religious? You see, Jesus fought over and over, battled over and over with this very issue with the Pharisees. They looked religious, but really deep down inside they were selfish. You see, religion can end up being one of the worst enemies of the gospel. And one of the greatest tools of the devil, if it is practiced with a self-serving 
legalistic heart. One that is about me. What is our motivation? What is really our heart? He who speaks truth, God's truth, to his heart. In verse 3, it says, He who does not slander with his tongue. The word slander here means to walk around and spread evil news of others, whether it be true or untrue. And I know this one is tough to hear. This one is so easy for all of us in this room, including me, to be guilty of. How many of us, how many of you allow your mouth to get you into serious trouble? I am there. It gets me in trouble. It is so easy to get frustrated with another person and be quick to share that frustration. But we need to be very careful with our mouths. I want to read something to you over in Proverbs. uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Listen to this one. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You know, that, that terminology there, seven things that, or six things that God hates, seven things that are an abomination to God, that's pretty strong language. I would say God would want us to, to stay away from those things and avoid them. Do you realize that three of those have to do with our mouth? It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. Chuck Swindoll gives us four gates of approval that information or comments must pass through before he is willing to pass them along. And I think they're great. I want to give them to you this morning. The first one is this, gate one, is it confidential? Is it confidential? If it is, we ought never mention it. It not not go any further unless we have permission to share that. Is it confidential? Gate number two, is it true? Well, that's important. Just because somebody says it, just because somebody gives you their rendition, just because you've read it on the internet, doesn't always mean that it's true. It may take some investigating, right? Make sure it's true. Gate three, is it necessary? Why is this information going to need to be passed along? Well, that's an important question, right? Is it necessary to pass along? And then gate four, and this might be the hardest. I don't know. Is it kind? Is it kind? Is there a wholesome purpose to it? And I guarantee you, if I'll live by this, if you'll live by this, and pass whatever you say through those four gates... Boy, it'll save me a lot of heartache. It'll save us a lot of heartache, won't it? Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Number four, the question is, what comes out of my mouth? There are other places in the scripture that say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's coming out of my mouth is what I'm filled with. Be careful. Be careful what you say. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. Verse 3. He who does no evil to his neighbor. He who does no evil to his neighbor. How many of you like to be around a pot stirrer? There are some that seem to thrive on the downfall of others. In fact, the more heated it is, the more uncomfortable it is, the more aggravated things get, the more they seem to be satisfied. 
There is no way this type of person is qualified to abide in the tent of the Most Holy. Don't be a pot stirrer. In fact, as a believer, we need to be a diffuser. It's like that fire extinguisher. When there's a fire comes up to you, and just put it right out. Be that kind of a Christian to encourage, to go to the source, to figure out what truth is. Be that kind of a person. Be a diffuser. Verse 3 also, it says, he who does not take up reproach against his friend. If we are in a relationship with a friend, what's eventually going to happen? We get to know somebody, what happens? We get in a disagreement, more than likely. We're going to have one. We're going to have a disagreement. There's going to be a difference. How do we handle those? Do we view our friendship valuable enough to go and work through that difference? To look at the other end and say there's going to be a more valuable relationship at the end of this? Or do we just wash our hands of that person and look for a new friend? Someone who doesn't know us that well and then start the process over again. He who does not take up reproach against his friends. Question five is this. How do I treat my friends and neighbors? How do I treat my friends and neighbors? And then verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The sixth question I want you to ask is this. Who are my closest friends? Who are my closest friends? We should avoid close friendships with a vile person. Your translation may call this person a reprobate. That is a person who has no interest at all in spiritual things whatsoever. In fact, they're a person who may always be thinking dirty. They turn everything you say into an innuendo. They always have the latest dirty joke. They want nothing to do with God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You know, we use this verse so many times in the context of someone that we date or marry, that it should be another believer. But I think it goes beyond that. When we partner up with somebody in whatever area, whether it be a best friend, whether it be a business partner, we need to be very careful. Obviously, someone that we date, someone that we end up marrying, ought to be a Christian, a believer, someone that is serving a Lord and worshiping God in the right way. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company rule, ruins good morals. You know, it is a given in these passages that we are not to be this kind of a person, the reprobate, the person who is uh, not seeking after God. But it's telling us as believers to be very careful on those we choose to be our best friends. It goes on to tell us to look for those who fear the Lord and honor Him. These are the ones that will encourage you to do the right thing, no matter how hard it is to tell you, and will stand with you through the difficult times and be there for you. You can probably attest to this statement that you can probably count those people in your lifetime on one hand, those kind of people that you can go to and share anything, and they're going to love you anyway. Let me encourage you, hang on to them. They're a precious person. They're a friend that is rare. Verse 4, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? It means that we are a person of our word. Did you know that a man's word used to mean something? There are some of you in this room that probably know that if a man made a promise and he shook on it, 
It was better than any signed contract that you and I signed today. It ought to be that way for a believer, that we be a person of our word. It means that I follow through with what I promise, no matter how hard or how much it hurts me. And that's not always easy because like the verse says, it can hurt, it can cause pain. And I must confess, there's probably people in here that I have hurt. Sometimes it's my own family that I tell them, I'll do this, and something else comes up, and I don't follow through. We need to be careful. We need to be careful what we promise. If we agree to do it, do it to the best of your ability and until you've completed the entire task. Question number seven is, am I a person of my word? Am I a person of my word? Verse five, he does not put out his money at interest. Now this one is warning against us taking advantage of those who are truly in need. There are people we come across who are in need all the time. If we see a person who's truly needy, not someone with a want or, or needy as a result of foolish spending, then we should loan them money with, out of love and not out of gaining interest. This requires some discernment at times, doesn't it? Sometimes giving money to a person is enabling them to go further into a sin habit. Sometimes giving money to a person is the absolute worst thing we can possibly do. It might be better to come alongside that person and help that person understand through that situation. We need to ask ourselves, what is the history? What will happen to remedy this in the future? The definition when a person needs help is what is true help? What is real help for this person? And and the question number eight, do I help those that are truly in need? Do you do that? Loaning money is the specific application here in this passage, but there's an overarching principle that's here. We shouldn't help or give, whether it be our money, time, or resources, and ask, what's in it for me? We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be about that. And you know, we may be tested on this very soon. Uh, It is good stewardship for us to take advantage of the tax deduction that we receive for our tithes and offerings that are given to this church. I take advantage of those, just like you do. It's good stewardship to do that. But did you know that there's legislation being tossed around right now that could eventually take away your tax deductions for charitable contributions or religious institutions? They're already talking about it. Would you still give your tithes and offerings if there was no tax advantage? That's a tough thing to ask, isn't it? But as we help, as we give, we need to be careful that we don't ask this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Verse 5 He does not take a bribe against the innocent. A bribe is money or favor given to someone in a position of trust in order to change their judgment or their decision. That's a bribe. This has to to do with honesty and justice. Honesty and justice. Do you practice what is barely acceptable or do you practice what is right? Well, that's a tough question. We can bend the law. We can look for loopholes. We can try to get off on a technicality. We can justify things in a lot of ways. But when we bottom line it, we have to ask this question, what is right? According to God, what is right? You know, we use this phrase, I've used this phrase, I need to do people right because I have to sleep at night. We say this because at the end of every day, we want to know that we have treated people fairly And right, and we feel good about that. And it's admirable to treat 
those around us right. But can I, can I challenge you to think even bigger? What if we began to think this? I want to treat others right because I want to be worthy to be welcomed into your tent, O oh God. And dwell on your holy, holy hill. Question number nine is, am I being led by the Holy Spirit? And not what's personally advantageous or politically correct. Well, that's a phrase we're hearing a lot of lately, isn't it? Politically correct. God, what about, guys, what about asking, God, what is right? There's a promise at the end of verse 5. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Moved from where? From what he's talking about at the beginning. From the presence, from the fellowship, from being with a holy God. It is important that we do these things. Five verses, that's all. But five verses that deal with matters of the heart. Matters in some ways that only you can measure. Only God can measure because only God knows your heart, right? Five verses that were written close to 3,000 years ago, but principles that are timeless and applicable for our day today. Don't let people tell you that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. It's God's word. He inspired his servants to write it. He created the fibers and ink of your copy. He gave you eyes to read it and a mind to comprehend it and a body to live it out. And by the way, that tent that we talked about at the beginning, the tabernacle that David wanted to dwell in, no longer exists in Jerusalem. That temple that Solomon built, it was destroyed in AD 70, no longer exists. In fact, the Holy of Holies is no longer even needed because now the presence of God dwells in a new temple. The inner chamber of every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that real to you? That the very presence of God that was in the Ark of the Covenant resides in you if you're a believer. Is that intimidating? I hope so. I hope it begs the question and makes us ask these questions. How, God, can I dwell with you? How can I truly have fellowship with you? And God calls back and says, be a man, be a woman of integrity. The reality of God's presence being in us ought to change the way we live. What has God been saying to you this morning? So we've been going through these five verses in Psalm 15. Has the Holy Spirit tapped on your door? Said that you? Maybe you're in this room and the presence of a holy God does not reside in you yet. You've yet to make the decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to challenge you this morning. What's keeping you back? What about today? Believer, is there something as we've gone through these nine questions, when you ask that question, 
Believe me, as I wrote them down, it was tough for me to read them. Because there are times I probably fail in each and every one of them. Where's your integrity? 